Luke chapter 22, verse 24. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Oh, this is a good passage. <laughs> I really love this. And you're going to love it too. Uh, and I'd forgotten about something in this passage. And I don't know that I've shared this with you before, but it's just a beautiful passage. You need to know that often Peter is called Simon. Uh, and he is referred to by Christ as Simon in this passage. Luke chapter 22, verse uh, 24. Also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the beauty of these words and the strange events that occurred on that night between the disciples. Help us to see that we struggle in much the same way as the disciples, that our solution, it was the same as their, is the same as their solution Open our hearts to your word today in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Today, as we continue with our series on the third season of The Chosen, our message is entitled, When Pride Becomes a Problem. When Pride Becomes a Problem. It was the famous boxer, Muhammad Ali, when he was young. Now, Muhammad Ali mellowed a lot when he got older, but when he was young, he was a little bit obnoxious. You know, he would always say, I'm the greatest. That was one of the things he liked to say, I'm the greatest. Well, one day he got on a flight, a commercial flight, and he sat down in his seat and he said, I'm the greatest. And the flight attendant came by and she noticed that Muhammad Ali didn't have his seatbelt on. And so she said, Mr. Ali, you need to put your seatbelt on. And Ali responded, Superman don't need no seatbelt. The flight attendant quietly replied, Superman don't need an airplane either. <laughs> Pride. I love, love, love the passage I just read to you. It is astonishing. Jesus is about to be arrested. This is the last day of his life before he goes to trial in a few hours. He's going to be crucified the next morning. And after three years of intense training, his disciples have apparently not learned a single thing. After three years of miracles, three years of sermons, three years of teaching, three years of going everywhere with Jesus and hearing the words of our Savior, 
They're having an argument. What is the argument? Who's the greatest? <laughs> what a dumb argument. How could they be? I'm sure Jesus is there scratching his head going, I failed. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. These guys haven't learned anything. They're having Now, that's something you would see on a junior high playground of adolescent boys with their chests sticking out. And we would all laugh at those little kids out there acting so tough when we know they're just little kids. Here they are in front of Jesus having an argument about who's the greatest. But Jesus, in his great patience, the same patience he shows you and I, doesn't give up on them. I would have, but he doesn't. He sees it as a teaching moment. If you want to become the greatest, he says, you must become the servant, the least, and serve others. Then he speaks of their future in his kingdom. He says, I confer a kingdom on you. And in this kingdom that I'm conferring on you, you can come and dine with me and you will be sitting on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. What they don't understand about that, because I'm sure they're all excited about hearing thrones because they've just had an argument about who's the greatest. Now they're all going to get thrones. They don't realize they're going to have to die to get to the, that kingdom, to have those thrones. Jesus leaves out that little technicality there, but he does make that promise. I'm conferring a kingdom on you and you'll be on thrones judging. Then seeming, uh, seemingly out of the blue, Jesus turns to Peter, singles him out of the group and speaks of Satan sifting him, speaks of his failing faith and turning back and Jesus gives Peter this beautiful assurance, I am praying for you. Now, when you and I say that to each other, I'm praying for you, I hope it is meaningful, especially if you actually are praying for them. But to hear that coming from Jesus, when Jesus says, I'm praying for you, it's not a platitude, it's power. And he says this to Peter, I'm praying for you that your faith will not fail. And then he says, in time, you will turn back. And when you turn back, I want you to encourage the disciples. Help the disciples because he knows in his absence, the disciples are going to need leadership. They're going to need reassurance. They're going to need strength. And Jesus physically won't be there to help them. And so he says, Peter, I'm counting on you. Now, Peter has no idea what Jesus is talking about. No clue. And so he says, and I didn't read this part. He says in response to Jesus, he says, Jesus, no, I'm, I'm ready to go and fight and die for you right now. Now, Peter, we learn, doesn't say that out of faith. He says it out of pride. He thinks it's faith. And sometimes we mistake pride for faith. Peter was a proud man. The Bible has so much to say about pride. It was perhaps the greatest failings of the disciples as they argue over who's the greatest. That's pride. But you and I struggle in much the same way. So the Bible talks about it a good deal. Jesus often taught on the subject as well. There is great duplicity, by the way, in the word pride. It can be a good thing or a terrible thing, depending on the context or the type of pride that is mentioned. As a parent, I'm proud of my children. They're growing up. 
They're accomplishing things in their life. They're finding their path in life. And I'm proud of them. That's a good thing. Any loving parent should be proud of their kids. Paul himself had that kind of positive pride. He didn't have children, but he saw the church much as his child, as he founded so many or started so many churches. He wrote the Corinthians, which by the way, if the Corinthian church was a child, it would be a difficult redheaded child. <laughs> and they may feel that there's not a lot to be proud of, but Paul says to this to them in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4, he says to the Corinthian church, I have great confidence in you. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all of our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. But Paul would be the first to tell you that he struggled with the other kind of pride as well. According to Wikipedia, pride sometimes is used interchangeably with conceit or arrogance, among other words. That is, it has a negative connotation. Oxford's Dictionary defines it as the quality of having an excessively high opinion of oneself or one's own importance. This may be related to one's own abilities or achievements, positive characteristics of friends or family or one's country. We have pride in our country, we say. Richard Taylor defined pride as the justified love of oneself. Similarly, St. Augustine defined it as the love of one's own excellence in probably a negative context. Again, there are both positive and negative connotations to the word pride. Wikipedia also says this, with a negative connotation, this is Wikipedia, pride refers to a foolishly and irrationally corrupt sense of one's personal value, their status or their accomplishments. It's used synonymously with hubris. hubris. While some philosophers, such as Aristotle, consider pride a profound virtue, other world religions consider pride's fraudulent form a sin, such as is expressed in Proverbs 11.2 of the Hebrew Bible. Here's Wikipedia mentioning the Old Testament. In Judaism, it says pride is called the root of all evil. When viewed as a virtue, pride in one's abilities is known as a virtuous pride, the greatness of soul or magnanimity. But when viewed as a vice, it is often known to be self-idolatry, sadistic contempt or vanity. And I think the key word in all of that is self-idolatry. That's what pride is. It's focusing on ourselves. It's puffing ourselves up. It's, it's an obsession with self. You only need to go to social media to see our obsession with self. Now, I'm not going to mention anybody by name, and I'm not thinking of anybody specifically in this congregation or in our church at all when I say this, because I have eight or 900 friends on Facebook I am amazed at how many pictures people take of themselves. You know, one or two, a few selfies here and there, and then you show the kids or the grandkids or the or friends or whatever. But some people, there's just hundreds of pictures of selfies, 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 selfies. Bless your heart, if you're doing that, that doesn't look good. <laughs> take a picture of your dog or something. I mean, my goodness. We, we have this self-obsession, and that's what pride will do. Pride is a key uh, part of the fall. Satan told Eve, remember, if she ate the fruit of the vine, she would be like God. And who doesn't want to be like God? 
Pride is the very sin that caused Satan to, to, to fall. It was the result of his, or, or, or resulted in his fall because he was proud and he was overinflated in his opinion of himself. So there are ways that pride does become a problem in our own life. And I want to share just a couple with you today, and we'll talk about a solution. Number one, pride becomes a problem when we give ourselves credit for what God does. Pride becomes a problem when we give ourselves credit for what God does. That is, God deserves credit for every good thing in our life. And there are tons of psalms and verses throughout the Bible where, where that is exclaimed, that God is the source of all good in this world and in our life. One day, the disciples of John the Baptist came to him and said Jesus was starting to baptize people um, himself. And they were a little unraveled by that or a little rattled by that because baptism was kind of a John the Baptist thing. And they came to John the Baptist as if to say, I get the impression they're saying to John the Baptist, he's stealing your thunder. He's taking what you're doing and he, he's made it his own. And so... I, I think they're kind of criticizing Jesus about that. And so I, I think they want to know what John thinks about that. Most people don't remember that John's disciples were loyal to him, just as the disciples of Jesus were loyal to him. So they seem to think that Jesus was stealing John's thunder. That now somehow Jesus was getting credit for what John did. But John gives the most beautiful response. Do you remember it? This is John chapter 3, verse 29. Again, another beautiful passage. Famous. The friend, he says, who attends the bridegroom, that's Jesus, waits and listens for him. So he talks about a bridegroom, that's Jesus, and the friend of the bridegroom, which is John. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. You know, that's really the, the goal of our life as Christians. That's the end game. That Christ will become greater, and we will become less. We become more and more like Christ. We reflect his glory and his love and his beauty more and more and more in our life. A few weeks ago, I told you we surpassed 500 in Sunday attendance for the first time on a regular Sunday. Two years ago, after reopening for the pandemic, we grew to 300. Last year, we grew to 400. And this year, we grew to 500. After the late service, one of the staffers, as I'm standing out in the, in the front foyer there, the front lobby, comes to me and he tells me the good news. And I told him immediately, I turned to him and said that when I exited the building, I was going to need some assistance in getting my head through the door. <laughs> because pastors struggle with pride more than anybody. Of course, I know and you know. The reason this church is growing is 100% because of God. It is our Savior that has grown this congregation. I can be replaced tomorrow. If I go out and get hit by a truck, I'm not planning to do that, but if I go out and get a hit by a truck today, God will replace me tomorrow. 
We could do it a thousand times, easily, a million times. God can choose anybody, obviously. He chose me. He could choose you just as well, just as well. My own staff, I told you, is mostly congregation members that God has called into ministry. So, I mean, don't, don't go get a bus and run over me. But you never know. God can use you just as much as he uses me or any other pastor. The grace of God. I know I've told you this story before about a lion who was very proud and decided to take a walk one day to, to demonstrate his mastery over all the jungle, all the other creatures. He strutted his way through the jungle until he came across a bear. And he said, who's the king of the jungle, Mr. Bear? And Mr. Bear said, well, of course you are, mighty lion. He went on further until he found a tiger and he said, who's the king of the jungle, Mr. Tiger? Of course you are, mighty lion, said the tiger. Next, the lion found the elephant. And he said, hey, big fat elephant, who's the king of the jungle? The elephant immediately grabbed the lion with his trunk and spun him around a few times and slammed him to the ground. He then stepped on him several times and picked him up and dunked him in the water and then slammed him against a tree. The lion, bloodied and bruised, staggered to his feet and said, look, just because you don't know the answer doesn't mean that you have to be angry about it. <laughs> Pride goes before a fall. Psalm chapter 127 verse 1 says it this way. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. I love that. The, the theme of that verse is, it's all God. <laughs> if you have food to eat, it's all God. If you have a house to live in, it's God. If you have safety and security in your town, it's all God. Or in your country, it's all God. It's not our military. It's not our technology. It's God. And if God withdraws our hand on our life, our town, our families, or our nation, we are doomed. Or if he withdraws his hand on this world, the world is doomed. We'll kill each other in a week. We'll end it all. It is the mercy of God. One contemporary paraphrase, and I don't often use paraphrases, it's kind of a children's Bible that interprets it this way. I, I like this interpretation. It says, if God doesn't build the house, the builders only build shacks. If God doesn't guard the city, the night watchman might as well nap. <laughs> it's useless to rise early and to go to bed late and work your word fingers to the bone. Don't you know he enjoys giving rest to those he loves? God is the one who gives all good things, including rest. Consider the gifts that God has given you. They are spiritual gifts, which means they don't come from you or me. They come from the Holy Spirit. So we can't take credit for those gifts. I heard of a pastor who received a Christmas card. One, and by the way, this is not me. <laughs> I heard of a pastor who received a Christmas card with a note in it from a lady in his congregation. Now, I do receive sweet Christmas cards from you. Thank you for those. Again, not one that I received. He said this lady who wrote him this note in this Christmas card was very complimentary about his preaching and compared him with Billy Graham. She finished by writing, 
I think you are one of the really great preachers of all time. Oh, man, to a preacher, that's like cocaine. <laughs> we just snort it right up. <laughs> Later that day, when he showed the note to his wife, she asked, who is that woman? He replied, she's a very intelligent woman in the congregation who loves great preaching. He then asked his wife, how many truly great preachers do you suppose there are really in this world? And his wife replied, one less than you think. <laughs> God gives us wise to keep us humble. Pride becomes a problem when we give ourselves credit for what God does. Pride also becomes a problem when we think we no longer need God. And that's really where our world is. It's always been there. It's where our nation is. The more affluent we get, the more advanced that we think we get. And by the way, we are not advanced. We're Neanderthals. We are so primitive. You can imagine if God allowed us to be here in a million years. Don't think that'll happen. I hope he comes before the week's out. But if we were, you know, they would look back and think, my goodness, all those nuclear weapons and all these wars, they can't even get along with one another. We are, we are not advanced. Again, we're dependent upon the grace of God to protect us from ourselves. But as a world, we think that we no longer need God. This pride brings condemnation. The Pharisees were filled with pride. Their holiness, their wisdom, their leadership, their righteousness, all false pride. They believed they had earned their right in heaven. They had said the right things, prayed the right prayers, done the right things, wore the right clothes, behaved in a certain manner, and they thought that in and of itself earned them a spot in the kingdom of heaven. So when Jesus came along, they didn't need him. They didn't need a savior in their mind. They weren't spiritually sick. They didn't need any kind of healing. And that's why they wouldn't turn. They wouldn't repent because they were filled with pride. Our culture is filled with pride. Like every generation since Adam and Eve, we think that we have outgrown God. Psalm 1, uh, chapter 10, verse 4, says it this way. In his pride, the wicked does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. That was written 3,000 years ago, and we haven't changed a bit. The great theologian John Stott wrote the following in his book called The Cross of Christ. The essence of pride, he says, is man substituting himself for God. While the essence of salvation is God, that is Christ, substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself on where only God deserves to be. While God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be, and that is on the cross. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belonged to man alone, which was death. Pride becomes a problem when we give ourselves credit for what God does. Pride also becomes a problem when we think we no longer need God. And lastly, pride also becomes a problem when we believe that God owes us. Now this one is really, it hits home with me and I think for most people. 
When we think that God owes us, God owes me this, he owes me that. Now I'll go ahead and tell you before we look at scripture, God owes you nothing. <laughs> he never did and never will. We owe God everything. We didn't create him, he created us. But we actually believe that God owes us. Jonah was a perfect example of this. He was an interesting prophet. He was sent by God to preach repentance to the Assyrians. The only problem was he hated the Assyrians. He wanted them to die. But God called him to preach repentance to them. So as you know, Jonah got on the first boat out of town going in the opposite direction. Well, that was a problem. He thought he was too righteous to waste his time on those awful Assyrians. Too proud as a prophet. After running in that opposite direction of Nineveh, there was a little issue on the ship. A few nights, uh, several nights actually, in the belly of a great fish, and Jonah finally got an attitude adjustment and decided to go to Nineveh. But he didn't want to, so he went there and he preached the shortest sermon in history. So obviously he wasn't Baptist. Forty more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. No, no call for mercy, no call for repentance. He just said 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. And then he went up and found himself a nice spot above the town so that he could watch, and I've told you this before, he could watch the mushroom cloud and big smile on his face as all the embers come up and everybody burns. He did that. This is Jonah chapter 4, verse 5. His pride got to him. Jonah went out and sat down in a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. He can't wait. He knew about Sodom and Gomorrah. Hot dog, he gets to see front row seat to the destruction. Verse 6, then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. Men were pretty simple. It doesn't take a lot. Um, but at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. Now, had he been Filipino, he would have eaten the worm. <laughs> it's a Filipino joke. But anyway, so obviously he was not uh, Filipino either. Verse 8, when this, I'm going to get in trouble for that later. <laughs> and, when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. I get the impression he probably didn't have a lot of hair either because the sun hit his head, his bald head, and he nearly passed out. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die, like a three-year-old. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? God cared about people. Jonah cared about Jonah because of his pride. Like all of us, Peter struggled with pride. That much we do know. 
when the disciples were talking about and debating who's greatest, Peter was probably leading the discussion. You don't see it anywhere saying that Peter says, oh guys, this is immature. You humble yourselves and be a servant. None of that. Jesus said that, not Peter. He was a part of the scramble to see who would be the greatest or who was the greatest. He struggled with pride. That much we're certain of. In The Chosen, the writers hypothesized that Peter's wife had conceived a child and then a few weeks later she miscarried while Peter was away. And in the, the series, Peter becomes very, very angry at Jesus. And we don't know any of this happened, but knowing Peter and the disciples, I can assure you things like this probably came up more than once. You see, Peter followed Jesus faithfully in his mind, and so you expect a little return. We follow Jesus faithfully. You're the ones here in church today. Don't you expect a little return from that? It doesn't work that way. God's not our genie, and God owes us nothing. We worship God, not so that we can get stuff. We worship God because he's God, and he's worthy of our worship. Whether he does everything or nothing for us, he is still worthy. So he felt that Jesus owed him. Watch this scene. Just one trip. One errand out of a thousand, and this is the time I can't miss. You said you go with him to the ends of the earth. Yeah, that doesn't mean every time he goes somewhere. And the Decopolis is hardly the ends of the earth. He didn't say it was. You know, I'm remembering something you told me in Samaria. I prefer not to talk about Samaria, if that's okay with you. That field he tricked you into cultivating for a Samaritan. The corrector prayed. It was not a trick. And I'm not exactly fond of that memory, Simon. Melech, with a broken leg. You said in the morning he was healed, but you were already at Fatina's house. Jesus didn't have to be present to perform the miracle. What's your point? Why can't he perform a miracle in the Decapolis from Capernaum instead of dragging us all into mostly Gentile territory that already has a doubt for us? Ask him. I'm sure he'd be more than willing to answer your question since success depends on you being there. Offit, he's nicer with you than with me. I don't hold that against you, do I? Oh, how very generous of you. Any other virtues you'd like to lord over me? Simon the exceptional? Simon the distinct? And also, yes, maybe he calls me beloved sometimes, but that's only because you have Eden. I don't know what you're whining about when you have found someone like her. Look, I'm sorry, I, I went too far. I know I wouldn't want anybody to resent me for having a wife. Simon? Hey, 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 Simon. Hey, I, I didn't mean anything by it. Simon, what's going, well, what did I say? Si Simon? Trusted Jesus. Of course you do. Wait, 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 trusted? I trusted that Eden would be okay. Safe while we were gone. I didn't know John. But before we all left on our two by two mission, we conceived the child. And while we were gone. No, 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 no. I'm so sorry, brother. When it, when it happened, she almost died at home with the baby. 
There was so much damage, the doctor said she might never be able. To my never. Why didn't you tell us? Because I'm furious, John. I'm so angry. Look, he is who he says he is. I don't believe it. I know it. He's the first and the last. He can do anything. How could he let something oh, like this? Oh, that's not the right way to think about happen it. Happen to Eden! Happen to me! Let's keep going. You're not exempt, Simon. Remember he said that in this world, bones will still break, hearts will still break, but he's making a way for people to access a better kingdom. He heals total strangers while I gave up everything for him. But that does not mean that your life will now be perfect. In fact, he said the complete opposite. I don't want to talk about this anymore. Life was a whole lot easier when we fished. She still could have lost a baby while you were a fisherman, Simon. We just wouldn't have anybody to turn to. He could have prevented it and he did not. You know, you hear the pride. And, uh, you know, that ought to hit close to home because even though we won't admit it or acknowledge it, we feel that because we follow God, he should do some things for us. Fix it so that our family is healthy, that we're healthy, or that we have this certain level of lodging, or this, this uh, thing that we want over here, or this candidate in office in the, as president, or whatever. We do this for you, God. You should do this. We have to be very careful about that. God owes us nothing. God does what he does because he loves us. And it's out of his grace. And grace means he gives us better than what we deserve. We don't deserve any good thing from him, but he gives us good things anyway. Did you know that in the Middle Ages, eating humble pie was something people did literally? Now there was choice meat, uh, but just like there is today, when they, particularly with deer, when they would clean the deer, uh, they, the first thing you do when you clean an animal like a deer is you pull out all the innards and the stuff you don't want to eat so you're left with the good meat. But real poor people could not afford the good meat and so they took all the in entrails and they made pies with it. They were called umbles pie. It was a type of pie that was made from leftover entrails and organs. People who ate it were always poor and thus humble. By the 16th century, well-to-do people who had gotten too prideful and too arrogant were admonished to go out and eat humble pie. So how do we defeat pride? Big slice of humble pie. Sometimes we need to do that very thing. I love this last part, and I'm going to let you go after this. What I'm about to read to you is from Peter. Years later, now the apostle, wise and mature, Peter, the guy filled with pride, writes this beautiful statement. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. All of you, it's Peter speaking, all of you, 
Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Because God opposes the what? The proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Peter. Alexander White was one of Scotland's most admired pastors. People everywhere talked about his godliness and his humility. When his young associate, James Black, told him this, White said, they would not say this if they knew my heart. Almost daily I fall short of what I know God wants me to be, and I am driven to my knees asking for mercy and help. On another occasion, he and Black heard the town bell ring to announce an execution. When his eyes filled with tears, Black asked him if he knew the person who was being executed. White said, no. I was just thinking that were it not for Christ in my life, that bell could be ringing for me. It is the mercy of God that gives us every good thing in our life. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's his goodness. Pray with me. Father, we come to you today and we certainly are able to identify with the disciples and with Peter. We struggle with pride. Everyone does. As Peter said, we find ourselves fighting against you. And you oppose us when we are proud. Sometimes, quite forcefully, you find ways to bring us to our knees as individuals, in our families, in our churches, and in our nation. This world needs to be brought to their knees. Their knees. We have become so proud. In our arrogance, we think that we've outgrown you, don't need you, don't acknowledge you, and don't give you credit for all the good things in this world. We say that we're not like the Pharisees, but we live in a world where we think that we deserve all the good things that we get, including our own life, as though somehow before we were born, we earned it. We did not. Every breath we take is your mercy. Every beat of our heart is because of you. Every day that you give us is a gift from you. Thank you. We ask for forgiveness for those times that we've been filled with pride. In the name of Jesus, Father, help us. Humble us. Thank you for your amazing patience with us as Jesus was patient with his own disciples when they didn't get it. While you're praying, no one's looking around. Can I challenge you today? Do you struggle with pride? If you don't know the answer to that question, you might ask one of your loved ones. They'll be honest with you, people that you know. Maybe the question is, how and when and where do you struggle with your pride? And give that to God today. Confess it to Him. Be thankful for the goodness of God. Maybe you just want to come and pray and say, God, I I kneel in humility right now. I give my pride to you. That's what humility does. Proud people don't kneel. It's an act of submission to God. 
Maybe God is calling you or your family to join with First Baptist Church. You want to become members here. Just come up and say, Pastor, we'd like to join. Maybe you want to give your life to Christ or become a candidate for baptism. Just come up and say, Pastor, I'd like to be baptized. I'd like to give my life to Jesus. Or you just want to come up and pray. If God is speaking right now, this opportunity is for you. As you pray, no one's looking around. Would you stand? Everyone stand. All heads are bowed. All